Good morning, guys. I know I told you last week that I did not think I was going to be here. I thought we were going to have a baby. I was fairly confident. And then Allie and I said last night, you know what? I think you're just going to be pregnant forever. So I'll probably be here next week. Who knows? Allie would hate if I even said that out loud. But who knows? It might be me. might be John. John's prepared. He's been prepared. He's ready to go at any moment. So I'm excited to hear what he's going to talk about. So we're going to do something um, a little bit different today. And um, it stands a little bit wobbly. That's OK. So my title, if you want to call it more or less my topic, is going to be questions about marriage. All right. This is going to be different from how we've talked about maybe marriage or relationships in the past, because it's been more directed to like, you know, how to have healthy relationships and all of that amazing stuff. This is going to be a little bit different. This is going to talk on actual biblical questions, and you'll see um, as we get into the first one in a second. And my goal is um, it, it might actually consist of a couple weeks of doing this because there's a few topics I want to address, one of them being um, divorce and remarriage because it's not really talked about a whole lot at church. A lot of things are just assumed, and there's a lot of interesting scripture that I don't believe a lot of people have um, good interpretation of. Um, I'm not talking about like scholarly interpretation. I'm just talking about a lot of people just kind of skip over those verses. So we're eventually going to address, you know, is there biblical grounds for divorce? If so, what are they? Will you still be able to, you know, serve in churches? Would you be able to be a deacon or an elder? We're going to address all of that type of stuff eventually coming up. But today we're going to address some of the questions that I get quite often, all right? And um, I also left, we got some pieces of paper and pens in the back, because like I said, I think we're going to do this for two weeks. We're just going to kind of see what I think the Lord wants me to do. Um, but if you guys have any that we don't address that you're like, man, I wonder what like the Bible would say about this, because it's not my opinion. I'm going to spend countless hours researching and um, reading and praying about it, and then I'll tell you what I've come to, right? So if you want to fill any of those out and drop them in the um, offering bucket, that would be awesome. And we might get to them eventually. All right, we're good. Everyone on the same page? You see what we're going to? Um, Cornegay, I will share the password with you. There you go. Uh, password, there you go. All right. Don't let it happen again, Hunter. I'm trying to do something up here. OK. Questions on um, marriage. Our first one, our first topic is going to be polygamy. All right. Like I said, might not be a topic that maybe you guys are interested in getting into. Hope not. Maybe. Um, I'm just messing around. But the question is going to be, I'm not talking about forced marriages. A lot of times um, polygamists can sometimes be abusive and things like that. Um, just statistically speaking, I don't know any personally. But we're going to talk about, can the Bible actually um, condone marriage if there are maybe a God-fearing husband and multiple God-fearing wives that want to be joined together and um, chase after God in his will? All right, because how many of you guys know there is a lot of countries that still practice you know, polygamy, um, Zimbabwe is one that comes to mind. And there's a couple of denominations that still practice it and um, still, you know, use scripture to encourage their audience to 
practice as well. Mormonism is one of them. Um, Joseph Smith had, I think it was around 40 wives. Um, there's only one legal wife because in where he was living, it wasn't legal to marry multiple people, but his church came out and said he had over 40. So there's multiple churches and denominations. Mormonism still practices polygamy. It's now called something like um, spiritual polygamy, which is a little bit different, but um, there's still a lot of people inside the denomination that practice the traditional form of polygamy. So this is going to be my question to you. This is the question I asked Allie last night, and she gave me a dirty look. But... Um, <laughs> Can you tell me, based on scripture, that polygamy is wrong? Because this would um, be the argument, is all throughout the Old Testament, we see the most God-fearing, God-anointed people, such as Jacob, Esau, Samuel, Solomon, who scripture says was one of the wisest and will be the wisest man to walk the earth, according to scripture, who had over 700 wives and 300 concubines. Why would God never condemn polygamy if we see it in all of these people's lives, what would be the reason? How can you say that polygamy is not of God when all of these God-fearing people practiced it? What would you say? What would, be your, what would be your thought process? There's many verses talking about wives submitting to their husbands, right? We'll get to that eventually. And um, we see all of this scripture that seems to be pointing towards maybe not a direct commandment to practice polygamy, but I don't see anything that talks about not practicing it. What do you guys think? What are your thoughts on it? I asked Allie and she told me, well, if you're going to um, you know, start leaning this way, just let me know and I'll pack my bags now. <laughs> And I said, sweetie, you've got to prove it biblically because, I mean, I can, you know, I can use some scripture right here. Like, like what is, it's hard to be married to, married to me. What are you going to say? Thou shalt not commit adultery. That is true. Okay, so adultery, that's a good thought. But what happens if you are married to the person? Not, mar not adultery if you are still married, right? All right, so this is what we're going to get into. I'm going to um, bring up a couple verses. And this is one that's normally brought up for... Um, kind of debunking polygamy is it's Genesis 2.24. We're just going to go through these. Like I said, I just want you guys to have biblical reference so it's not just an opinion. For If you're a coworker, this is kind of um, something that atheists use a lot that... Um, you know, that Christians, you know, they don't know what they're talking about and that the Bible condones polygamy and all this stuff. So I want you to have a good biblical understanding other than, well, I don't think God would, would condone that. And then they show you a verse out of Deuteronomy that talks about when you marry another wife and you're like, oh, maybe, maybe it does, you know? So um, let's first read Genesis 2.24 and then we'll talk a little bit about it. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So the first thing we have to understand is the difference between descriptive scripture and prescriptive scripture. You guys know the difference between those two terms? Descriptive would be, um, for instance, David is the king of Israel. Is David still the king of Israel? This is an easy question, guys. No. Okay. So is the Bible wrong? Because it's descriptive to what it was talking about, right? All right, 
prescriptive. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Was it just talking about the people that were going to read that particular scripture? No, it's prescriptive, meaning that it's for us too. It's for us, all right? So descriptive, just describing what is going on in that time. Prescriptive is describing things that are applicable to us as well. All right, so in this passage, how many of you guys know that Adam did not have a mother or a father? That Eve did not have a mother or a father. So he's not just describing his particular situation, but he's actually stepping into a prophetic position where he's starting to declare over both you and I what it will be like to enter into a position of marriage. And he's saying, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother. You guys know I love Genesis, and I could talk about this couple verses for an hour. I'm really trying to skip over it. But he goes, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, you could argue it does use the phrasing they. We could get into a Greek and Hebrew um, debate about that one word and that one um, Hebrew word, but you guys probably don't want to. So I'm just going to quote some New Testament, and then we'll be done with this and move on to the next um, question. All right. So here we go. This is 1 Timothy 3.2. This is talking about church overseers and elders. Um, elders and overseers can sometimes be um, switch depending on how it's translated. So just in case you didn't know that, there you go. So therefore, an overseer could also be translated elder or leader. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. So obviously, you cannot be a polygamist, according to Paul, and enter into church leadership. This phrase is extremely debated when it comes to the topic of divorce. We'll get into that in a later week. I'm just going to breeze over it for this week. But it says, therefore, an overseer must be above reproach in the husband of one wife. And then it goes on and he says in verse 12 that he actually um, brings deacons into the same phrase in verse 12. And he says, deacons must have one wife. So in order to, according to Paul, who I would have guessed we would submit to his authority. If you're going to be a deacon, if you're going to serve in church leadership, you have to have one wife. In Titus 1.6, it says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to all this stuff. The point is one wife. And I hear so many people like debating this topic. They bring up this topic and they point at all of this Old Testament scripture and they go, what, what's going on? And there actually is kind of an interesting debate to be had. You guys know that I love this stuff. But if you want to cut the debate short, you can easily just say, in the New Covenant, it is very obvious. I think there's still a debate to be had that it wasn't God's will for you to enter into polygamy in the Old Testament. But for sake of time, I have more questions. I'm just going to say it's very obvious when you enter into the New Covenant that God intended there to be a man and a woman and them to be joined together and to create one person. And there's many times in Scripture through Genesis and Hebrews and 1 Corinthians where they use this phrase, the two become one flesh. It doesn't say the three, the four, the six all joined together and they became one. 
it says the two became one. And then there's, you know, in Titus and First Timothy, there's some blatant scriptures that talk about one life. So like I said, I can get into um, the debate about the Old Testament, but it doesn't really, it's not applicable to us particularly because we're in the New Covenant. All right. So like I said, I still believe that it was more descriptive when it comes to polygamy happening in the Old Testament and not prescriptive. Understand the difference now? All right. So and we see in Genesis 2.24 that Adam is then speaking prophetically as a man will leave his mother and father and cling to his wife. Not, you know, I don't think it's talking about 12. There are people that will say that, so you guys can go home and study that on your own. Um, 1 Corinthians 7, 2 says, but because there is so much sexual immorality, I have a lot of hot verses, guys. This phrase is super debated, too. Each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. Polygamy is really an absolute contradiction to a wife having her own husband. The fact is she would then have to share him. It's not a 1v1 type of relationship. Each man should have his own wife. Each woman should have her own husband. The husband should fulfill his wife's sexual needs, and the wife should fulfill her husband's sexual needs. Well, after we leave church, you know what we're doing, honey. The pastor gave me scripture and everything. It's according to the scripture. The wife gives authority over her body to her husband, and the husband gives authority over his body to the wife. You're entering into this position where you're going, hey, it's not just my life anymore. We're, we're, I'm giving you authority over who I am, over my body, and the wife will do the same thing that the husband will do, and they will be joined together as one. So if someone asked me, those would be the scriptures that would come to mind. I don't just want you to give, um, well, in my, you know, in my understanding, in my opinion, I don't think Jesus would think like that. We were just talking um, in the prayer room. There's... Um, you know, as Jess was talking about some small groups that happen in like the Orlando area where it's like a very open relationship now, like church small groups where they practice open relationships. And again, a lot of denominations that still practice polygamy and open relationships. So this isn't just like some abstract um, biblical thought, like who would think to practice that? Like this is getting more and more common in our day. And I want you guys to have scripture to back this up and think, wow, scripture is actually clear about it being a one-wife relationship, a one-on-one where I give full authority over to my wife that the marriage bed will not be defiled, that it's between me and this one person. All right, sound good? I'm going to enter into another question. I get this one quite often personally, and it's, do we have to join our bank accounts? Anyone ever heard this question? (laughs) You get married, and you're like, gosh, that guy buys the stupidest things, or my wife wastes so much money. Like, do we actually have to join our bank accounts together, put all of our money in one pot? I hear this one quite often. Now, I'll be honest, Scripture does not directly address bank accounts. All right. It doesn't directly say, hey, when you get married, put your money in the same account. But it does indirectly address it, in my opinion. So I'm going to use scripture to, um, to address this topic. And then you guys can go home and pray about it. And hopefully I don't start an argument in your marriage. <laughs> that is not, um, not my point. But as we um, just read uh, Genesis 2.24, 
it says that they will be joined, that two people will become one person, right? Isn't it interesting that two people will become one person, but two bank accounts stay two bank accounts? <laughs> Isn't it interesting that we would give authority of our body over to each other? That we would get to the point where we would go, hey, hey, Allie, what is mine? Like, I'm giving you everything. I am yours, and you are mine. But what is mine is mine, and what is yours is yours. <laughs> like I said, the scripture doesn't directly address it, but I believe indirectly the idea of keeping finances separate is in complete conflict with what scripture points marriage to be. And that's two people becoming one person where everything that I am is yours. I give you authority over my own body. I give you authority over everything that I am. And it's this mutual agreement where you come together and you go, hey, everything that I am is going to be joined to you. But yet we step in and we go, eh, my money, I'm keeping separate. <laughs> I love you. I think you're great. You're awesome. But um, you can have my body. You can have my, my life. I know I'm entering in for life. You can have all of that stuff, but my money, nope. A lot of us enter into our relationship with Jesus the same way. <laughs> We can go, hey, Jesus, you know what? You can save me. You can pay for my sins. Here's all of my problems, all of my baggage, but my money, I'm going to keep that to myself. <laughs> and we do that in our marriage, too. And we go, oh, I wonder why there's, um, there's conflict. Did you know statistically that you are more likely to have a healthy relationship if you pull your finances together? You ready for the poll? Here we go. In 2022, that's pretty recent, right, guys? In 2022, there was a meta-analysis poll done by the Journal of Personality and Social Philosophy. The study was done on couples that did and did not pool their finances. It showed that couples who did pool their finances together had greater satisfaction in relationship, are less likely to separate, and it was especially true to couples who made less money. So. Statistically, if you want to have a long-lasting, happy marriage, you should put your finances together. Biblically, I believe the two become one. But you guys are open to make whatever decision you would like. But that's just, um, that's just my interpretation of Scripture. Now, I believe with every rule, there are some exceptions, Corey's opinion. I believe there are exceptions in situations with people with gambling problems, people that... Um, Maybe it might be in maybe an abusive situation where you might have to get out quickly and you might should start separating money. And if you need to get out, you have a way to get out. So in certain situations, I believe, you know, we talk a lot of times just to the general situation, but there are certain situations where I think it's important for you to start pulling money aside. And for you to go, hey, if you're going to keep gambling away, if you're going to keep throwing money away, we, we need to do something differently. All right, so there are certain situations in there. I don't think the shoe fits for everybody, but I feel the majority of the situations you should probably try to let the two become one. <laughs> All right, this is the second one. This one's a little bit, um, a little bit interesting. I hear this one quite often. If you sleep with someone, does God view you as married? Anyone ever heard this one? It normally comes up with um, 
maybe cohabitation um, couples, and they go, well, God views us as married. Um, We're together, you know, all that stuff. I hear it quite often. I know you guys probably have too. I'm going to read you um, a real question um, from somebody, and then we'll address this question. She said, I have been with my partner for 12 years. I think we are married, but we haven't had a wedding. Is a wedding a man-made tradition, or is it necessary? I have been wondering this for a while and have not come across any scripture that specifically tells you to get married. And then she refers to Genesis 2.24. She says, therefore a man shall leave, we just read it, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And she says, see, there's no specific marriage. We don't see any wedding bells. Gosh. No wedding bells, no dress. There, weren't, there wasn't a flower girl and Adam and Eve. Here they are. They're married. All right, so again, striking your um, curiosity, how would you answer this question? Did Adam and Eve get married? Doesn't seem like it. So is it actually necessary for there to be a wedding? Or is it the act of um, sleeping with someone that God then views that person as joined together? Now, fun fact, um, I won't bore you with the details, but I've actually spent a lot of hours studying the phrase, they shall become one flesh, because it passes through Hebrew writing and Greek writing throughout the Old and New Testament. And believe it or not, from my understanding from all these different scholars and Hebrew and Greek-speaking people, the phrase one flesh it really is referring to intercourse. It's primarily referring to intercourse, one and one fitting together and becoming one flesh. All right? So again, this would kind of use, you know, they'd use it to argue their point. See, even one flesh is being used to argue that it's just intercourse. So the question is, when I have intercourse with someone, am I becoming one flesh? Am I being joined together? Is that marriage in God's sight? What would you guys answer to this girl that has been living with someone for 12 years and hasn't gotten married yet? Hopefully, it would be a very gentle (laughs) and loving response that you would have a good relationship with the person before you respond. So we're going to read a couple verses. And I'm just going to kind of, um, in my opinion, I'm going to break it down after that. I believe there is a joining of sexual relationship. I won't use, that would be weird. Um, There's a joining of sexual relationship. (laughs) And then there is a joining of um, covenant and marriage. I believe there's two different things, and they happen in two different ways. So we're going to address the two, and we're going to read um, 1 Corinthians 6, 16, all right? So this is Paul. And he says, do you not know he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one. Again, he's using the phrasing when relating it to intercourse, right? And he says, when you're joined with a prostitute. But notice he didn't say, when you have intercourse with a prostitute, you're entering into biblical marriage, (laughs) He doesn't say anything about God viewing them as connected or someone being responsible for the prostitute in any form of speaking. All he's saying is, do you not know when you're joined to a prostitute, you become one body with her? You become one flesh with that person. 
And um, maybe you guys have grown up in church and you've heard the word soul ties a lot. And this um, Greek phrasing is where we get that word from is because in scripture, um, sex is not just a physical act, but there's actually a form of spiritual um, tying together. And um, I don't know if you guys have ever used wood glue or not, but if you took two pieces of wood and you glued them together like this, wood glue is like amazing. I don't know if you guys have ever used that stuff, but I'm telling you, stop at Lowe's, buy a $4 bottle, and that stuff will blow your mind. Listen, I didn't know you had to clamp it at first. All right, guys? I've put that stuff on, and then I was like, this isn't working. You got to clamp it. Give it, you know, 24 hours. That will blow your mind. Anyway, if you do that, you put the wood glue on, you clamp it, you know, however many hours later. If you go to take it off, let's say I hammered one side, I hammered, 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 pulled it off. It does not break at the glue. Half of this board will be on this board, and half of this board will be on that board. And that's exactly what happens when we become one flesh with somebody, is half of us is left on them, and half of them is left on us. And so many of us have walked through life wondering why we don't feel like a whole person. is because we're left in pieces being tied to all these different people. We go, why do I feel like this? Why do I always feel empty? And it's like, well, maybe it might be because you've tied yourself to so many people and the bond is yet to be broken. Because when you tried to split it, it can't split at the glue. He says, don't you realize the two become one flesh? Paul's elevating this to go, hey, it's not just sex. Prostitution was very, very common at that time. They didn't have... Um, you know, pornography and stuff like we do, like a lot of people get into, and that can come kind of, you know, keep them under wraps. But, but a lot of people were getting into this actual prostitution, you know, type of intercourse. He's going, hey, it's not just sex. You're being tied to this person with one flesh. So I'll, I'll address that in a second. But I think it's just really obvious in Scripture that God doesn't automatically see you as married when you enter into a relationship or when you have intercourse. For instance, how many of you guys know there would be no such thing as adultery? There would just be polygamy. <laughs> how many of you guys know there would be no such thing as fornication? There would just be marriage. <laughs> You can't have premarital sex if when you have sex, you enter into marriage. You just be like, oh, well, Sally was in 12th grade, but now she's married. You know, Sally was in 10th grade, but now she's married. You know, that's just how it would be. But yet, I believe, again, this is debated too, I know. I believe that the Bible teaches that fornication is premarital sex. You shouldn't do it. All right? That's what, it, what I think it teaches, and we can have debate on that later. But either way, you can't, be, you can't enter into marriage right when you have sex if that's what the Bible teaches. Make sense? So if someone says, hey, I believe that I'm married in God's sight, I don't think you should just rebuttal and answer at them and go, well, this is what Scripture says. You should be really loving and create relationship. And if they actually ask your opinion, because unwarranted advice is always criticism, all right, so that's not how you're going to lead people to the gospel. It's his grace that leads people to redemption, not your criticism. <laughs> grace, grace, just in case you missed it, it's his grace that leads people to redemption or to repentance. So just in case you missed that, it's his grace. <laughs> but it's for you to understand, hey, okay, it says 
that it's when we, so what, what changes? Where's the other type of um, covenant? Like what changed when Adam, Adam entered into this relationship with Eve? And I think it's the very thing that all of us practice when we have a wedding. If you get to the very core of your wedding, if you strip away the fancy dress, the music, the food, all the money that you wasted on that one day, yeah? If we strip all that stuff away, what is at the very center of it? It's two people making a proclamation, making a covenant, this is for life. Through sickness, through health, it's you and me. And what did Adam do? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. He made a covenant. I'm going to leave my father and mother, and I'm going to be joined to you. He made a covenant. It's me and Eve. We're going to become one flesh. If you're just you know, having casual relationship and sleeping around, I don't imagine the one flesh thing is going to sound very attractive to you because you're not going to want to be joined to someone that you're eventually going to walk away from. You don't want to be joined to someone you're going to eventually walk away from. That's why the scripture holds, you know, I think it's really careful and it tries to give you a lot of stuff to help you out, not because it's mood and God's a cosmic killjoy. Just read Song of Solomon's on your way home if you think that's what he's all about. All right? Put it on audio and let you and your wife read it because, you know, I read the verse of 1 Corinthians. All right. Anyway, he's not a cosmic killjoy. He says this stuff because he goes, hey, I know what happens when you enter into a relationship like this. And I just really don't want it for you. I love you and I care about you. So it's not just the physical tie, but it's also the covenant tie of speaking out. And when those two come together, there it is, that's marriage. And in some cultures, did you know that they wouldn't even consider a marriage if it wasn't consummated? They would actually, um, they'd actually force you to have an annulment if it wasn't consummated in a certain amount of hours. There's actually cultures and probably areas that still practice that today. And I know I've talked about this a little bit, but it's interesting. Um, in ancient Jewish culture, when you know Sally and Jim and they'd come up and the young couple's getting married, the family would come and the friends would come and they'd all cheer them around and they'd give their vows. And then as soon as they gave their vows, they would then take a step back and they would enter into the consummation tent with the family and the friends all around. And they'd enter in this, to this tent and they would consummate the marriage. And then they would come out and they would take the bloody sheet, right? It's supposed to be bloody, God's original intent. They would throw the bloody sheet on top of the tent and the whole crowd would cheer because it was not just a covenant made from the mouth, but it was two that became one. It was not just a verbal covenant, but get this, it was a blood covenant. Now, <laughs> it has been heavily debated. You guys can look into this, but... Most scientists will agree that there is no reason for you to have a hymen. There's just no scientific reason for you to have one other than I believe God wants you to enter into a blood covenant where the two become one. Where the two become one. Now, I know, I don't want to get into it, but I know everyone might not be born with one and all that stuff. But hey, if I ask you how many fingers you have when you're born, you're probably going to say 10. But guess what? People are born with 11 all the time. All right, I'm just speaking to the normal situation. 
I believe it was God's intent for you to have a blood covenant where two become one, not for a year, not for two years, not for a decade, but for life. I believe that was his original intent. It's when covenant and physical meet together. Make sense? Sound good? We have some scripture to back that up. You guys feel good about that? All right. Now, I know that if you felt the mood just got dampened, The mood just got dampened. So we're going to deal with this next question, and then um, we're going to be done, Okay? It says, will my marriage suffer because of my past mistakes? Will my marriage suffer because of my past mistakes? Now, (laughs) this question I have probably gotten more than ever. And it's actually not normally said in a question form, but more in a statement form. I hear it said in a statement form all the time. And I'm going to address why I think that is, because Many of us grew up um, in kids' church and youth group and all that stuff. And I personally have heard this statement said many times, maybe you guys have as well. If you will save yourself until marriage, your marriage will be blessed. How many of you guys heard that? If you will save yourself until marriage, your marriage will be blessed. Now, that's a really sweet statement when you're talking to a room full of youth. But how many of you guys know if you switch that statement around, what does it say? If you do not save yourself until marriage, you will not be blessed. And I've watched um, and I've heard many stories where um, you'll get into struggles in your marriage and, and you'll go, well, this is just because of X, Y, and Z. This is because I slept around. This is because I made poor mistakes. This is because I I made that decision or this decision. We go, this is why I'm struggling. This is why. And it's really easy, especially when you, um, um, you know, it's hard because sometimes truth can set you free. And sometimes if truth is applied in the wrong way, it will be the very thing that will hold you captive. So you've got to be careful how you apply truth, because a lot of times you can teach people about soul ties and the importance of being careful um, when you have sex and who you have sex with. And it creates like this bound captivity for people because they go, well, I've already messed up. I've already had you know, four, five, six sexual partners. Does that mean I'm still tied to all these people? And now I'm married, so what am I supposed to do about it? And now my, my spouse had three, four, five, six, seven sexual partners. So what are we supposed to do now that we're together? And I've heard this struggle in a lot of relationships. Maybe you've felt the same one. I've heard this struggle specifically on people's second or third marriage because of certain scriptures. Like I said, we'll address that at a later week. It's just too much to get into right now. But... Um, I've addressed this topic or tried to many times. And I'm just going to be honest with you guys. I think the reason why no one wants to talk about it is because out of fear, if I tell you there's not going to be any lifelong damage of having premarital sex, then people will take that as a license to then do it. And I believe this was Paul's great conflict in writing the book of Romans, is he would talk about grace for an entire chapter, and then he would end it, or he'd start the new chapter by going, does that mean we should keep on sinning? And he would go, no, that's not what it means. 
So it's so hard sometimes to talk about, or I think it's hard for people to talk about grace and stuff because then they're afraid it's going to be a warrant to sin. My desire is to teach <laughs> biblical facts, and what you do with them is honestly your own business. And you know, there is hard scripture about, you know, Jesus literally said, do not mock the justice of God. You will reap what you sow. So guess what? If you have, you know, let's say you slept around a lot and, and you got an STD or, you know, some type of sexually transmitted disease, sadly, that is a seed that you reap. All right, that's not necessarily God's punishment, but that's something that you reap. So there are seeds that you will reap from that, from planting those seeds. All right, or a harvest that you'll reap from planting those seeds. That's a just a factual understanding. All right, you're going to probably have some, um, you know, disconnection in your marriage, maybe when you run into a certain person or a name comes up or things like that. It might create some conflict. That's a a harvest that was reaped from the seed that you planted. Let's just be honest, right? All right, I tore the scriptures apart many times. Maybe there's one in there. I cannot find any scripture that says your marriage will be blessed if you abstain from premarital sex. Maybe there's one in there. I tore it, a, tore it apart. I can't find anything. I can't find anything that's alluding to something like that. I just can't find anything that says, if you don't have premarital sex, your, your marriage will be more blessed than someone that doesn't. All right, that's not a warrant for you to go do it. I just think that's biblical truth. Now, I'm going to tell you one scripture that stuck out to me when I was thinking about this question. And how do you, how do you, um, how do you talk to someone that's maybe hurting or dealing with shame or condemnation or feeling like, am I still tied to people? How does that work? And this was the scripture that came to um, mind. This is 1 John 1, verse 9, right? Now, again, it's not, it's indirectly. I know if you guys want to, you know, tell me this doesn't apply, that's fine. I think it does. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is such a cool verse, right? Now, that word cleanse, that's the Greek word, katharidazo. I listen to that quite a bit. Strong's G42, you know? You, those of you that study, study Blue Letter Bible, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It means to be cleansed, to make clean. All right, this is what was so interesting to me. This is the same Greek word that Jesus used when, when the leopard came up to him and he asked him, are you willing and Jesus looks at the leopard and he goes, I'm willing. I'm willing. Caleb, can you come up here and play for a little bit? So you guys know the story that I'm talking about? The leopard, leopard walks up to Jesus and he goes, are you? No? He told me no. That's messed up. Clay, you got it? That's a first. I was just kidding. I think he has something going on. Um, that was a joke. Anyway, the leopard walks up, walks up to Jesus, and he goes, are you willing to hear me, heal me? And Jesus goes, yes. In some translations, it translates to be healed. But the Greek word is this karthardizatso, which means to be cleansed. 
And he says, yes, I'm willing. Be cleansed. That same word being cleansed, the leprosy, the disease was then removed from the man's body, right? He was no longer a leper. The leprosy was then removed from his body. And Jesus says, if we confess, or John, you know, speaking in scripture, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse, to take out the disease that maybe we made, that we did, the shortcomings that we had, to cleanse, to remove us from all unrighteousness. Now, that unrighteous word is the adaikiah. It's as close as I'm going to get, guys. It's the Greek word. It means injustice, unrighteousness of heart and life. So the unrighteousness of your heart and the unrighteousness in your life, the decisions that you've made, that you're dealing with. And it says, a deed violating law and justice, an act of unrighteousness. That's what the word means, an act of unrighteousness. So it says, if we confess our sins, if we go, God, you know, I actually I had a lot of shortcomings in my life. I slept with people I shouldn't have. I did things that I shouldn't have. If we confess those sins, if we go, God, you know, that was outside of your original intent for me. Will you please forgive me? His word says he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I don't know um, your backstory or what you did last night or last year or 10 years from now, but would you just want to take a second and um, just ask the Father, is there any unrighteousness that I've allowed to linger in my life? Are there any soul ties that I've carried around maybe in my marriage or I've carried around for, for months or years? And just tell him, just confess whatever it is to the Lord and then just ask him to forgive you. And his word says he is faithful and just. And um, if you can think of a particular person that maybe um, you've had a soul tie with, you can do this, this thing. Um, because the enemy, if you guys want to listen to my message about open doors, it's a lot to get into. But you can just say, I break that soul tie. Any spiritual connection that I had with that person, I make by an act of my will to break that off in Jesus' name. I break that soul tie in Jesus' name. God, will you please cleanse me not just of my sin, but of all of my unrighteousness. In your name, amen. That's why the gospel is such like a complex, a hard thing to wrap your head around because at times it seems so easy that we can fall so far, that we can make so many mistakes, completely completely reject his commands and his words, and yet grace still abounds. And yet grace is still that good. 
All right, like I said, I know it's a little bit different, but there's a lot of um, topics, not just in marriage, but in scripture in general, that I notice a lot of times we have preconceived ideas, or maybe we heard a pastor say something and we have opinions on, but we don't necessarily have scripture on it. All right, so I kind of want to just take a time, whether this is one week, two, or three weeks, and just address some of the stuff that is not normally addressed. Okay, so if you guys have anything that um, you would like to be addressed, like I said, we got the pieces of paper in the back, just write something on it. Don't put your name, it can just be anonymous, drop in the bucket. But um, depending on when the baby comes, we're gonna, um, I'm gonna address a few more of these topics, all right? Does that sound good? Oh, I've got one more thing. This is for small groups. This is for people going to small groups. Um, this is something I want you guys to, to think about over lunch, and we're going to um, kind of debate it and let iron sharpen iron a little bit. This is the question. What if a lifelong, uh, what if a long-time polygamist gives his life to Christ? All right? Someone that has been a polygamist married to maybe two of his wives for 10 plus years. What if he gives his life to Christ? Should he stay married? to all his wives or divorce one of them. All right, so this is going to be your topic. We're going to discuss this small groups. Just for sake of this hypothetical situation, imagine one man, two wives. Let's just say for the situation's sake that they're, they just got saved. They all love Jesus. They all feel loved and encouraged. Now they're married. Should he keep both wives? Should both of them stay married? Should one be divorced? If so, which one of them? How do you go about that? So that's going to be um, one of the topics that we're going to talk about, because this is actually a real thing. There's people in Zimbabwe right now that are getting brought the gospel. Their lives are being transformed. And then here we are. They've been married to four people for the last 20 years. How do you lead these people in the gospel? How do you help them? How do you grow them, right? So these are the type of situations as Christians that we have to deal with. All right, sound like fun? I'm going to pray for you guys and we're going to head out. Like I said, write some questions on um, this piece of paper and maybe we'll get to address them. So Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how good and how amazing your word is, for how good you are, Father. I ask that you would come and you would speak to these people in a new way. God, would you speak to us in a new way? I don't want to just have opinions. I want to have biblical opinions. I want my view of right and wrong to come from Scripture and from you alone, not from what a pastor said, not from what just a parent said, but from what you said, Father. I want it to come from you. So I just ask for a blessing to be placed on these people that you would go before them and behind them, that you would guide them, and that you would speak to them, and that they would have an encounter with you. In your name, amen. Thank you guys for coming. Um, feel free to chill out. I don't think we have to break down this week. Nope, no breaking down. So hang out, talk to people, enjoy your time. We'll see you at Small Groups at John Kimmer's house, and it's going to be great. See you later.